like us before the talk begins to do this very simple chant or sound that we sometimes work with here, which is the sound of opening or letting go. It's the summary of 80,000 verses of perfect wisdom and 800 verses and in one syllable. And the reason it's the sound of perfect wisdom is that it's, it is, or the first or the last sound, is it's the sound of opening or letting go. So let's just chant the sound, ah, that seed sound for a bit, and then sit with that. I don't know which is sweeter, the sound of the ah, or the silence afterward. It's like that poem from Wallace Stevens about the blackbirds. He says, I don't know which I prefer, inflection or innuendo, the song of the blackbirds, or just after. Last week, we talked about attention to feelings, in particular the practice of wakefulness or mindfulness, sensing the body in the body and the feelings in the feelings, the eyes of our eyes being open, the ears of our ears can hear. I'd like to extend that in a very simple way, speak about the quality that involves both graciousness and delicacy and truthfulness the center of opening in the spiritual life tonight, which is the quality of listening. And it's really just a reminder. We sit together and have these words to remind each other of this eternal present. And of course, it's easy in certain ways on a spring day, or a little bit easier, because the freesias are out and the wild iris are kind of waving at you as you go by you know, and the acacia, and the, the wind goes across these fields and the flowers move like it was waves on the ocean in the sunlight after all these months of rain. And the earth is kind of saying, well, I got rained on and now I'm going to dance for you, you know, and it's part of who you are. 
we are that. And the frogs start singing along the creeks. It's spring. And not only that, no matter how dark it gets, and it does get very dark sometimes, and how difficult it gets, and how lost we may be, spring always comes. It never fails. Not once. The breeze that comes through this room very softly, I can feel it from the window, touches the bay trees, brings a little of the scent of the bay leaves. So when we practice together, what that is when we come together to remember this possibility of awakening, we listen. And sometimes it's the scent of the bay, And sometimes as we sit, it's the sense of our heart and our mind, the tension, the business we're in the middle of, all the things we carry, the voices of the children on a spring evening, and then they remind you of beautiful things or painful things, depending. Oh, that child is crying. And then all the tears of your youth come, you know, or worry, or delight. Remember playing hide-and-seek? on a spring evening. A person came up to me yesterday during the, several people came during the day long of sitting and said, oh, I've been thinking a lot and worried about this and that and my, I just can't stop my mind. So much thought. You know those days? And I just looked at them and I said, what would you be feeling? What would be here if you weren't so busy thinking? If your mind wasn't so much carrying you away, we just stopped for a moment and immediately their eyes filled with tears. Tears started to fall down their cheeks. And the grief for their difficulties at work, the loss of someone they loved, all the tears they carried for a long time just started to pour out. That simple. All this thinking and words and, well, what would be here if you really felt yourself? There is one capacity central to this awakening that is what is our spiritual life, most central, and that is the capacity to sense, to listen, to open. The Zen poet, wonderful old woman who wrote of her life, Ryonan, she said, Ask me no more about moonlight. I have written enough. Only listen to the sound of the pines in the cedars, the voice of the pines in the cedars, when no wind stirs. That quietly. So today here we are and we sit, and there's the tension and the planning and the fears and the longing and the love and the excitement and the stuff in our bodies. And if we have ideas about what should be here, we're busy with the map and we miss the turn. You know, it's like Bellinus where they won't put the sign up, right? That's how it is in meditation. We get busy looking at the map and we miss the turn to Bellinus. Remember this story I like to tell. I actually talked to him yesterday or the day before. I have a friend 
Rick Fields, who is one of the one of his books, the, the sort of the history of Buddhism in America, how the swans came to the lake. Um, and when he was new to this meditation stuff, his teacher was Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, been reading these Buddhist books, got very inspired, so he tells, and decided he was going to go off, take six months and go on retreat and get enlightened, really do it. So he got a little hut up in the mountains in Vermont in the summer at Tale of the Tiger, took up his sack of brown rice or whatever you ate in the 60s, right, and kind of brought some spiritual books and just getting ready, and he was lucky. So he had this hut right next to a beautiful bubbling stream. So he sat down there ready to feel his breath and body and quiet his mind and sense the mystery. And as he sat, you know how it is, you sit, and it's like looking in the mirror. All the stuff comes that's there anyway. And his mind was busy thinking and remembering and after a few days it got worse, which it does on retreats. You'll see if you haven't done a retreat, the first few days are difficult and then new vistas open. But after a few days, he just, his mind kept thinking and it would play tunes. You know, the top ten tunes, he kept doing it. And worse than that, it was kind of marching band music, stuff like that. You know, not, you know, stuff just gets stuck in your head. And he'd be sitting there and there was this beautiful stream outside and he'd sit and he'd try to quiet himself and get ready for really deep meditation. And he'd hear the sound of the stream. And just in time with this bubbling stream, the band would, you know, Stars and Stripes Forever or whatever that was. And it was terrible. Every time he sat, he'd hear the stream, the marching band, and he couldn't stand it. And after a few days, he said he was so frustrated, he got down from his cut and his cushion and went down to the stream and started to move the rocks around to see if he could get it to play a different song. (laughs) That's what we do in a way. We think that it's the world doing it to us. But who is bothering whom? So mindfulness, mindfulness, insight meditation, is based on this great art of listening, like Siddhartha hearing all the voices in the river. It's an ancient art, and it's somewhat lost in our society, the speed of our society. One of the teachers here, Julie Wester, has been a hospice nurse for a long time. She's working with this family and this woman. She's going to do home care. and person was saying, you know, it's so difficult, especially at night with my father, he's ill and he's dying, you know, but he calls me every five minutes to come in, every ten minutes I have to go in and I don't, I'm not getting any sleep and it's not working. She looked at her and said, well, maybe, maybe he wants someone with him. <laughs> Is that possible? Maybe he actually wants someone to be with him. Oh, you know, you might try that. So this woman said, oh, I'll try that. So Julie came back some days later, check in as she did her rounds, kind of, how's it going? One was proud of herself, I did it. I've been in with him. I got a TV and I got some earphones so I could sit in with my father. It's a true story. Hmm. We keep busy. We don't stop. And yet something great is asked of us if we would awaken to see with the eyes or the heart of a Buddha. 
It's hard. There's speed, there's stress. Our healthcare system spends 60% of these billions of dollars on the last nine months of life, which says that we live in a society terrified of death. The wasteland of television, consumerism, racism. You know, look around. So it's hard. And we're all so busy just trying to make it, which is fine. I mean, you do need to make it. Buying and selling, our country selling weapons, selling the earth. My family, we went to Asia a few years ago on sabbatical. Um, we were in Bali. And I remember, you know how it is when you see kids crying in restaurants and being whacked by their parents and, you know, in the longs drugs and things like that. It's so painful. And there was this American or European mother and her two kids and they were traveling. The kids were crying and she was kind of trying to pacify them and, you know, irritated with them at the same time. Especially this young one and this Balinese family that we were living with. The woman was there. She said, why doesn't she just pick the baby up every time it cries? And I was almost ashamed. My wife and I were together. My wife said it to tell her that um, many American mothers guide their child-rearing by reading a book by, of some man that they never met. And this woman couldn't believe it. Well, I mean, the kid's crying, you pick it up. So when we don't listen, we lose touch with our instincts, with what our heart really longs for, what our body wants, what the earth needs. We get caught in the ideas, the plans, Rumi, send the chaperones away, he says. Inside me a hundred things are putting their fingers to their lips and saying, that's enough for now. Silence is an ocean. Speech is only a river. When the ocean is searching for you, don't walk to the language river. Listen to the ocean. Bring your talking business to an end. When you sit down beside your beloved, send the chaperones away the old women who brought you together. What happens when we say, pour me some wine, and then try to talk about the wine? The cup is at my mouth, and my ear interrupts, I want some, it says. Oh, ear, what you get is the heat. You turn red from the wine. But the ear says, I want more than that. If you only know one poor kind of wine, you will not know the other, the great vintage until the moment the poet and the juice of generosity collaborate to make something eternally new. Enough words, let's listen. When I teach in retreats, interviews, mostly it's just to listen to when people come in and try to hear what's going on with your breath, your body, your heart, your fear, your anger, your longing, your love your understanding, and say, can you hear that too? Can you be with that? Can you sense what's true? To meditate is to reclaim an intimacy with ourselves and life, to actually listen, to take the time. And out of this listening, to be able to respond, to be flexible like bamboo or like water, 
Listening is an act of great compassion and mercy. You could call it an act of the great heart of a Buddha. Every time you listen, that's your compassion. And you understand it, we do quite easily, if we look in our lives, by observing its opposite. What we experience when we're not listening, or when we're not listened to, to ourselves, to another. What's ideals, you know, even spiritual ones, how it should be, shouldn't be angry, you know? Ha! Do you know anybody that doesn't get angry? I don't. <laughs> you know? When we're not listening, what we find is the pain of separation, isolation, competition, possessiveness, fear, kind of busyness where we're not really alive. It's like the little kid in the restaurant comes in with his parents, eight-year-old boy, waitress comes up, takes everybody's orders, turns to the kid, says, and what will you have? He says, I'd like a hot dog and a Coke, please. Mother says, he'll have a meatloaf and mashed potatoes and carrots. Waitress looks back at him and says, do you want mustard on that hot dog? <laughs> he says, yeah, thanks. She turns away, everybody's jaws kind of look at that. The kid looks up and he says, you know what? She thinks I'm real. What is it that most people want? To be listened to, to be acknowledged, honored, heard from the heart. The young men in the retreat I talked about a couple of weeks ago, this multicultural retreat, 40 young men from Watts and Oakland and East Los Angeles and various places. And the thing they wanted was respect. Said, I never had somebody really listen to me, especially you know, grown-ups, whatever they are, elders. I've done couples work as a psychologist at times. Almost all the couples work is, did you hear what she said? Let's see, could you repeat that so that she knows that you really understand? Did you hear what he really said? Not just what his words were. Did you hear really what? That's a lot of it. It's sort of like translation, right? <laughs> from Swahili to, I don't know, Rajasthani or something like that. Did you get it? That's really most of what it's about. Did you hear it, and I mean hear it from your heart? In a way, that's what the sacred, what God wants to, to use that language. It waits for us to taste the food, not just the menu which is to say that there's something deep in us and all it asks for is to be heard, to be known. Something that we know, that we've known since before we were born, who we are. It's an act of courage and compassion to listen. Joseph Campbell's reading description of the period in his life when he was traveling with John Steinbeck and going up to Alaska on these fishing boats and kind of just threw his life wide open, didn't know what to do. Kind of like Carl Jung, who played in the sand for three years, had kind of a nervous breakdown in which he had all the creative visions of his life arise. There's nothing like living when you're not living with a direction, but just enjoying the glory of the moment, 
that's what we were doing, said Campbell. Takes compassion to listen also to our friends, community, to the cries of the earth, parents, children, the species. You remember, you know, three species of bear, all species of orangutan, 12 species of monkey, eight of whales, all species of rhinoceros, all Asian lions, five species of kangaroo, 15 of turtles. They speak to us. They say there are not many of us left. Help us. Remember. Can we do this? Can we listen with the ear of our, inside our ear, with the you know, eyes of our eyes, with the body and heart? This quality is called mindfulness, sati, sacred presence. And its quality is an attention where there is neither grasping, that we want this somehow to be a certain way, nor resistance, judgment, aversion, not judging it or pushing it away, not grasping nor resisting, nor delusion, not getting lost or identified, saying this is me or mine. Can we listen in that way? I remember going to a lecture by Krishnamurti, a series of lectures he had in that oak grove in Ojai, and sat on this one little wooden chair with a little white canopy and hundreds of people under, you know, giving his lectures on awakening. Are you, you know, listening and finding what's true? Quite compelling. And he gave this long lecture on death and how death wasn't true. And then he was mostly toward the end and he said, shall I go on? I was thinking of speaking about life now after death. Shall I go on? And everyone said, yes, yes. And he said, are you tired? And people said, no, no, we're not tired more. And he said, well, if you were really listening, you'd be tired. (laughs) He had that way about him, old Krishnamurti. (laughs) But can we really listen? Can we sense without all our plans and our ideas, even for a moment, just be here? This presence, sometimes it's called bare attention. Remembering what's so, mindfulness or heartfulness. And it doesn't matter whether it's meditation or computer programming, whether it's, um, you know, construction work or lovemaking or child rearing. That quality of presence is what makes things alive. Now for this listening, and it's really what we learn, it's a a practice again and again to actually listen to what is so here and open to what's true. It's hard, you know, all these things you want, but how it is, this eternal moment just now, takes a kind of humility, takes several qualities. And the humility isn't, oh, I'm a humble person, that kind of humility. You don't have to worry about that. We're all humble in the end, and if you're not, you will be. You know, it's how it works, right? (laughs) Humility means, more simply, that we don't know. It's don't know mind. Like the Zen master who says, who are you really? What is death? What is life? Where does light come from, this thing that we take in, 
you know? How do these vibrations in the air turn to images? I can say a deer running across a field and you can see it. How does that happen in your mind? Nobody knows. What is consciousness? Raise your hand. Uh I don't know, you say. Ah, that moment. You don't know. That's what humility is. What does another person need? I don't know. So there's a kind of humility. It's that story that I tell of Gandhi's chief Dharma successor, Vinoba Bhave, who didn't want to go to the big meeting several years after Gandhi died to restart the Gandhian movement and said, no, no, let's not try to recreate the past. They finally said, please, please, you are our leader now. He said, all right, if you postpone it six months, I'll come. I want to walk across India and listen. And so he went village to village as Gandhi did, meeting under the trees with villagers. Partway through came to this village. People were hungry as they are today in many villages, many places in the world. Easy to say, but it's really hard when you let yourself listen to it and feel it. What to do that there are people hungry? And Vinoba said, why don't you grow your own food? But they were low caste. No one would give us untouchables, low caste land. We can't. So he said, listen for a while, work with them. When I get back, I'll talk to Nehru himself. We'll pass a law. We'll give land to the untouchables. He didn't sleep well that night and woke up the following morning. Called the people together again, said, I'm wrong. I know politics. You do too, don't you? Hmm? Just watch Washington. Doesn't matter, really. He said, even if we pass the law, and it will take years in our parliament, and the land goes from the central government to the you know, great provinces and states to the um, districts and to the sub-districts and finally to the local village chiefs, by the time the land gets down here, if any of it is left for you, I'd be surprised. I don't know what to do. One man stood up and said, how much land do they need? 16 families, five acres apiece, 80 acres. He says, I have land in honor of Gandhiji and for our new country, India, I will give 80 acres. Fantastic, Vinoba said, no. Go home first, speak to your wife, to your children who will inherit the land. Make sure it's really all right. He did and he came back, yes. Had a big meeting, the land was given went to the next village, meeting under the tree, same scene, hungry, why don't you grow your food? The same problems. So Vinoba told the story, what happened in the previous village. And another man stood up and said, I too honor Gandhiji. How many families? Twenty, one hundred acres, I give. Go home first, ask your family. By the time that Vinoba got to the conference, He had collected 2,200 acres of land. He told the story to this gathering. And out of that began the Bhutan Indian land reform movement. Um, And for the next 10 years, Vinoba Bhavi and thousands of his followers walked on foot through every province and every district in many of the villages of India. And without the government, collected 14 million acres of land 
in the largest peaceful transfer of land ever that I know of. Um, and all because he walked and he listened. So it's that kind of humility. I don't know what are we supposed to do about some of the problems of the world, the problems in our own community. To not know and to listen. It also takes a kind of stillness which we can cultivate. The Buddha was asked, how do we cultivate this quality of attention? And he said, here, I'll give you an image. Suppose that you are asked to carry a jug of water through a crowded marketplace on your head. That's how water is carried in India. Filled to the brim. And behind you was a soldier with a sword instructed by the king that if any water should spill from that, even a drop, you know how it is in fairy tales and things, off with this, their head, off with your head. How would you walk through the marketplace, the Buddha said. Carefully, of course, what do you expect? But not rigidly, because if you did it rigidly, it would spill. You would have to be flexible and quiet and allow your movements to sense the movement around you. He said that flexibility, that listening, that kind of presence is what I mean by mindfulness. The caller chants in a loud voice at dusk, says Kapir. Does he think God is deaf? Don't you know God hears the ringing of the anklets on the feet of an insect as it walks? So this quality of attention is also one of stillness. And the stillness doesn't mean there can't be noise, but it's the stillness of receptivity, of hearing the voice within the voice. It's like this Hasidic master rabbi who was, came, a man came to visit and said, Rebbe, Rebbe, my marriage is in trouble. The Rebbe said, you must learn to listen to your wife. Good advice. So he went back, took it to heart, and returned after a month, say, it's gotten somewhat better. It's still trouble, but somewhat better because I've learned to listen to every word my wife is saying. And the Rebbe said, that's a good start. Now go home and listen to every word she isn't saying. <laughs> ah. So that kind of stillness. The stillness of lying there with your lover or your child or looking at your garden when the first things are starting to sprout and you really look and see them coming out of the earth. Small things. Sunset your breath. And then a simplicity, humility that we don't know. We really don't know. So can your heart open in not knowing? A stillness. It's kind of like bowing to what is. And the simplicity. Our minds, you know, I'm, at least I can say for mine, mind is really complicated. Ideas, plans, you know, creativity attacks, goals, judgments, how it should be. You know what I mean? our fears. And in all that, when we only have that, we miss that ah and the stillness. The marvels of what happens without our control. 
because that's just their ideas about stuff. But here we are in these things, these human bodies we've been talking about, what somebody called a hairy bag of water, right? <laughs> that we ambulate around in these strange ways with fingers and toes, you know, and babies come out of some of us, only half of us. There it is, a new person. Unbelievable, if you watch that. How did that grow in there from that tiny little seed? There's a whole other person, right? And this air that we can't see but we talk through, it's wild how we communicate. Uh, we move this tongue, it's muscle, right? And these ones, weird ways, and shape our teeth and then I make sound. That's poetry and, you know, song and stuff. It's totally bizarre how we communicate in this body, right? Rhinoceroses. Viruses, right? Dinosaurs, bugs, breasts, penises, vaginas. Really, I mean, look, it's bizarre. It's weird. <laughs> Haven't you, you had those moments kind of looking at this thing? Toes, strange things, you know? Water, it flows, it gets solid, it turns into a gas. It's amazing. We take for granted. Mm. This is from John Muir, his first book on the mountains of California. He was up in the Sierras, December 1874, in the tributaries of the Yuba River, when a great storm began. Everybody kind of battened down the hatches of their cottages, except for John. He battened down the hatches and then he went out in the storm. He said, I climbed, I took for such occasions. Um, I would risk life and limb for a moment to see the show that nature puts on. The force of the gale was such that the most steadfast of the great sequoias was rocked to its roots. I drifted through the midst of this passionate music across ridge after ridge, halting in the lee of a rock for shelter to gaze or listen, and when the great anthem swelled to its high pitch, I could hear the tones of the trees like musical instruments, the spruce, the fir, the pine, the leafless oak, even the infinitely gentle rustle of the withered grass, 80, 90 mile an hour winds. But it wasn't enough. I gained the summit of the highest ridge in the neighborhood. It occurred to me it would be a fine thing to put my ear closer to this celestial music. So casting about, I made a choice of the tallest of a group of Douglas spruces growing close together. Climb to the top of it. Slender top, flapping, swishing a passionate torrent, bending backwards and forwards, tracing indescribable curves in the breeze. 20 to 30 degrees in arc. And I clung with my muscles firmly braced and then tied myself, lashed myself to the top of the tree for the night. Imagine that. You know, everyone else is going in, and what is John Muir saying? Hey, there is a show on, folks. Let's boogie, right? The view from here, extremely beautiful in any weather. Now my eye roved over the piney hills and dales in the moonlight, the light running ripples ridge to ridge, waves breaking in the air. The sounds of the storm, glorious like the wild exuberance of light and motion, naked branches, pine needles rising to a shrill whistling hiss, the great Aeolian music, strong and comfortable, the wonder of nature. Winds become the advertisements of what they touch. K 
carrying the scents of the bay leaves, the perfume of the land winds. And finally, when the storm began to abate, I dismounted and sauntered down through the calming woods. The tones died away. The morning sun was arising. As if to say, my peace I give unto you. And I gazed upon this impressive scene, the ruins of the storm forgotten, and these noble woods appeared fresh, joyous, and immortal. That's a kind of listening, huh? Imagine. Wow. Simplicity. Now it's tough. If you really are to listen, it's not easy. I remember going to my teacher Deepama's wonderful yogi, this great kind of grandmother figure. She was a kind of master yogi. Sometimes it seems like there's too much grief and too much sorrow and too much pain in the world and too much longing. I can't do it. And I went to her one time, several times. I can't do it. My heart is breaking. It's too painful. I feel all the things in me and all the things of the world that we know are there that we carry. And she would just take me then and she would kind of do a blessing. She would say, shh, and she would bless me. Suki Hotu, may you be happy, may you be happy. Bless you. It's okay. Shh, don't try to be anywhere else. You can be here. And just kind of stroke my body. It was really wonderful. Shh, it's okay. You can feel this. You can see this. You can listen to this. Your heart can open to this. And she would look with that look that in India is called the glance of mercy. That moment when somebody looks at you and sees the sorrows that you carry and the struggles of your life and they say, it's okay. I'm here too. It's all right. And somehow in this opening is our true happiness and our freedom. The cycles of the sun and the moon and the seasons are all there. And the sorrows, the 10,000 joys and sorrows. Mercy. There is a mercy of individual things, says Merton, that spring into being without reason. Virtuous in the sight of the divine. Every plant that stands in the light of the sun is a saint and an outlaw. Every tree that brings forth blossoms without the command of human beings is powerful in the sight of the divine. Every star that man has counted, has not named, is a world of sanity and perfection. Every blade of grass is an angel singing in a shower of glory. Listen, he says, just listen. So this is the question we come to practice. What in our life is asking for listening? What is singing in front of us? Or what is crying out for our respect? What is the message of our body, of the body of our earth, of our communities and families? When we're still, even in a moment without expectations, we begin to hear what is true And it is there that we find rest and awakening. You know, often we're waiting and waiting and waiting. You know about waiting? And we're waiting just to hear some simple thing. I love you. Or it's okay. Your pain is okay. Your sorrows are okay. Your beauty is okay. Your joy. That's simple. 
someone came up again this day long yesterday here, said, I'm afraid I'm going to start to cry in the meditation. What should I do? I said, oh, please cry for us. Because then when you cry, everybody around you goes, ah, it's all right. My teacher, Ajahn Sah, said, if you haven't really wept, you haven't begun to meditate. So as our heart discovers the tears and the concerns and the love and the joy and the fear and all the things we carry, we discover that this is our Buddha nature, our birthright to open to them. Sometime in your life, hope that you might see one starved person, a man, and the look in his face when bread finally arrives. Hope that you might have baked it or remember to bring it, or even needed it yourself, for that look of connection, for your meeting his eyes across that piece of bread, you might be willing to lose a lot, to suffer a lot, or even to die a little. That kind of attention or care to ourself and the earth. So you sit, walk, listen, And this is the opening to the mystery. And as we learn this art of listening over and over, what is this breath in its own breath, this fear and this love? As we listen to the song of all things, the sounds and sights and smells, touches and thoughts, they come like waves of the ocean. And then there arises this last question in spiritual life. Who's listening? What is this space of the listening heart? In Taoism, you know, it's not things but space that's worthy of attention. It's the inside of the bowl or the pot that's valuable because it holds things. It's the space in the room. It's not the walls. They just are the edges. What's valuable is the space itself. When our listening, at first as it need be, Here's just the sorrows and the, you know, the longings and the love and the plans and so forth. It's like we hear just the melodies in the waves and we tend to judge this is good and bad, painful, beautiful, doubt. And we look for some peace in that, seeking some particular experience, some resolution to make life okay or full or to make us whole. That looking for something comes of his inadequacy. Yet if we listen to the space, this space of the heart within which things arise, nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood or held. Like this guru who was dying, and the disciple said, Don't leave us, Master, don't leave us. All I've done is sit by the riverbank handing out water. After I'm gone, I trust you will notice the river. (laughs) Listening to the space between the voices, all the things we want and like and don't like, all the things we've identified with, who is this person who sees and hears? Who am I? Who were you as a child? Who were you before the womb? It's like this experience with my teacher in 
Bombay and the Sargadat Maharaj. Somebody came and said they had all these divine visions, Rama, visions of God, you know, kind of to impress him. And he said, do you see these visions now? And the person said, no. And he said, what's the use of gods who appear and disappear? And what good is that? Why don't you find out who knows about these gods? Who is the seeker and the one who sees? For the divine is not an object of your experience. It is what is listening. When we listen to the space, when we become that great heart of a Buddha, in which plans and past and future, all the things that we identify with, we make a space bigger than that. When the heart opens and the ears of the ears awaken and the eyes of the eyes, we live in our bodies and we find that we float in this great ground of silence. Ajahn Chah used to say, where is that place where there is no going forward and no going backward and no standing still? Now, I don't want to tell you where it is. That's for you to figure out. Right? It's not right to say, because it doesn't make any difference. It's just more words. Nisargadat, he says, when you are very quiet, you can arrive at the basis of everything. This is not the quiet that is the absence of experience, but the silence behind, in the midst of it all. That is the deep, dark blue state in which there are millions of stars and planets. And from that place, you understand that wisdom says you are nothing. And love says you are everything. And between those two, your life flows. The Queen of Sheba, I end with her poem, speaking to the beauty of wisdom. She says, the wisdom of a heart is sweeter than honey, brings more joy than wine, illuminates more than a thousand suns, is more precious than all jewels. She causes the ears to hear and the heart to comprehend. I love her like a mother, and she embraces me as her only child. I will follow her footprints, and she will not cast me away. So sit up, if you would, for a moment. And just listen. Listen from that place that knows in you, that is known for a long, long time what is true. Notice how the breath breathes itself and the thoughts come and go of themselves 
like phantoms or dreams. The heart beats, the feelings come like changes in the weather. And the space of listening is much greater than all that. Rest in that eternal presence, that wisdom, that great compassion that holds all things. The things we love most want to be listened to. They want your attention and respect. And what is in ourselves wants to be listened to. And the amazing dance of life asks for your attention. There's a way in which there's not much more to say about meditation than just that, just to listen. And if we can spend time together, as we do, it's a great gift. A couple of more brief announcements and a little chant and we'll end. I'm going down to the Yucca Valley retreats, which will start later this week for the rest of April. Wonderful retreat space in the desert. Um, and so the following week, few weeks, we'll have uh, Wes Scoop Nisker next Monday, and then uh, Sylvia Borstein the following Monday, and then I think who is the following Monday after that? I think it's Sky Armstrong. Oh no, Gil Fransdell will come. So 
a wonderful teacher. Um, another announcement I was given, pleased to make, is that as a benefit for the Marin AIDS project, there will be a concert Friday, April 7th in Mill Valley of Eric Berglund, who is supposed to be a magical harpist at the United Methodist Church in Mill Valley. So anyone interested, you can look for that. Also, someone here, Tom, needs a ride to San Rafael. Is there anyone who can give a ride to someone to San Rafael? Raise your hand if you can offer a ride. Somebody in back there, would you come up here at the end and then Tom come up and you can meet? Um, let yourself come back to Spirit Rock if you wish uh, and just walk the land. It's a beautiful time of year. Or come to other classes if they would serve you. Just see this as one of the places for your spirit, for your home to be. Um, there is uh, a basket on the table as you leave, and the donations that you've already been asked for um, help to run Spirit Rock and help to support the teachings here and teachers, and they're very gratefully received. If you wish to um, leave any further support, it just makes it possible to continue to keep this as a sacred place and invite others to come. So your support is, um, is beautiful, and we honor you for, for, for doing it. Um, see if there's anything else. Just to say, try to take time, even though we live in a culture where time has become you know, more important in our sales than even sex or death now. It's time-saving has replaced things to sell stuff to you. Um, and even though there's all this time pressure and you know you have call waiting, we have a call waiting world, right? Um, turn your phone off once in a while. You know, park your car, go for a walk every day, or sit quietly and don't do anything, or pick some flowers for no reason at all. And take that kind of time each day to remind yourself to listen and to live. Your children will be happy you've done it, and your parents and your colleagues and everybody else, because then when you're connected with yourself, you really will know how to serve and what the earth asks of you. So let's do just this very simple chant. Uh, the word is namo, um, that I'd like us to chant together nine times. <clears throat> and it's a word that means I bow to or pay my respects. In India, when you meet someone, you say namaste, I honor the divine within you. Namo is the same root. It's the beginning of every great Buddhist text or teaching that just says, I bow to or I honor this great life, or I honor the person in front of me, the, the Buddha there next to me. I honor the Buddhas in my family who give me so many teachings and the ones on the highways, you know. <laughs> so we'll chant that together. And as you chant, you can imagine or sense what you would like to pay your respects to, your prayers, your blessings. Na mo na
great wisdom that you carry in that spaciousness of listening in compassion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.